I want to invite you to think about something with me for a moment. I'm going to ask you a question. Uh, I am not going to ask anyone to answer this out loud, so this is a question you will answer in your mind's eye. I want everyone to push the pause button on life, and truly we, we can because we're here. There's nowhere else to be than right here with each other under God's Word, and and I want you to, 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 to seriously ponder this question in your mind. Um, this, the, the answer to this has more to do with your future uh, than uh, your, your bank account. It has, has more to do with, with, with hope in your future than even uh, job security. I, I would say this, and I don't think it's an overstatement, um, how you answer this is probably more important to your overall health like emotionally, physically, spiritually, your overall health, how you answer this, it's more important to that than even what you eat and are you exercising. Here's the question I want you to think about. How did you get where you are today? How would you answer that? I I, I want you to think literally. Consider the circumstances of your life right now. Consider... You were born into a family and then you're raised in a neighborhood and you have this family, these parents, this life, and and now you're sitting here, you're here, and you have people you know and you have a a job or family, uh, you have obligations, you have assets, you have material possessions, you have connections, you have opportunities. How did you get where you are today? And don't think of the, don't, don't give me the churchy answer. Jesus, you know, don't, don't go straight to that one. You know, you're sitting in church. Give the honest answer, the one that, you know, if you showed it to your spouse, you'd say, yeah, that's what you, that's what you think got you here. Or you could show it to your worst enemy. And they would, agree, yeah, that's what you think gets you, has gotten you where you are. Just think about it. How did I get where I am today? I would suspect that our answers are as varied as the faces that are looking at me in the room. And yet, they will all hold this one truth. Whatever whatever our answer to that is actually how we believe life works. This is how we believe life works, is how I got where I am. Today, is, life, is, is really life, you work hard and you get what you earn? Is, is life what you make of it? Uh, is life some mixture of that plus serendipity and good fortune and luck? Are you where you are by some mystical thing we call fate? That uh, it, it's just fate you were born when you were born in history and in this family, in this culture, and you're American, or you're this, or you're that, and you are where you are. Unless you think it's a metaphysical, kind of irrelevant question, I would suggest whatever, whatever you think got you where you are is what you think is going to get you where you want to be. And in this way, can I be so bold as to say, how you answer the question controls you. That controls your life. You think this is what got you, you think that's what's going to get you where you're going. That's why it matters. Now, we're studying a book in the Bible that answers this question multiple times and in 
multiple ways through its story. It affirms and describes God's providence. What are God's works of providence? You don't have to repeat it. We did this the first time we did it out of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. Men and women, the Bible teaches us that we are where we are by God's works of providence. And it's going to become abundantly clear as we pick up this story in Esther. We're going to catch a glimpse, and we'll catch it all throughout the story. We're going to catch a glimpse of God's providence in her life that's going to help you and I. I'm going to use two words here. Wrestle with God's providence, because we do, but also rest in God's providence. I think there's some lessons here that help us understand, y'all, when we're resting in God's providence, and I mean this, resting in it, I think it's only then that we're living with hope, this level of hope that Paul says there's a hope that doesn't disappoint. And I think it's tied in part to resting in God's providence. Open your Bibles to Esther chapter 2. We're picking up in verses 5 to 23 today. Esther chapter 2, verses 5 to 23. Let me give you the context. You always got to reach back and figure out where this particular text fits. This is a bit of a review. We're in the Persian capital of Susa. Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus is the king of Persia. This guy is nuts. He's unbelievably wealthy, powerful beyond our imagination. Uh, you remember he threw a banquet, right? This is, he throws a banquet. How long did the first banquet last? Tell me. Six months. So we're all there. Who, who throws these kind of things? A, uh, half a year dedicated to a party. At the end of that party, he throws another banquet that lasts a week. And at the end of that party, he says, Bring the queen. And he commands Vashti to come. Vashti does not come, and, and the whole thing's thrown up into turmoil. And Michael walked us through this last week. And, y'all, when you read this story, it really happened. And it's okay to laugh a little bit at parts of it because some of it just gets nutty. You're going, oh, my gosh, this is crazy. Well, there, because Vashti refused the king, the, his, his counselors decide you need to do something because every woman in the kingdom is now going to rebel against her husband. And so they say, you need to write an edict. And so... He writes an edict, and this is true, and it goes out all across in every language and all the provinces, this edict goes out, and it literally says, every man should be the master in his own house. And quite frankly, I think that's pretty good policy. Until Michael Wright last week corrected us on, on policies, okay, he nuked that one. Okay, once again, his attendants come to him, he's, he's lonely, by the way, timeline, three year, at least three years have passed, and he's lonely, Mrs. Vashti, in a sense, and his attendants come and solve this for him. It's always the attendants that are solving this for this brilliant king, so to speak, isn't it? They're suggesting. And they say, let all the young virgins in the provinces be gathered. We'll put them here. We'll beautify them. We're going to talk about that in a moment. Then let each one sleep with you and the one that satisfies you sexually, that pleases you. Let's make that one queen instead of Vashti. Historians aren't sure, but it's probably in excess of 400 young women they would bring uh, into the palace, into the harem, the house of, of women for this. Now, I told my girls I would give this caveat, and, and I do, and some of you need it as well. I'm not throwing anything under the bus. Just let me say this. With the exception of Ben 
and Sean. Okay, so they're, they're the exception. With Ibexa, Ben, and Sean, this is the original bachelor. This is, this is, this is, this is, you know, beautiful women, one guy vying for that. And there's a little, there is humor in that. I'll get to the end of this, and there's not humor in that. I'm going to read the story in three parts. Oh, by the way, I, I said this because you get how I live in my home. When my girls are watching The Bachelor, they're in the playroom. When, when I start walking up the steps and they hear my feet on the steps, they begin to yell, no negative energy, no negative energy. And so I turn around and I come right back down, you know, let them do that. It's crazy. Okay, Esther's a story. We pick it up in 5 to 23. There's three parts to this. Esther's distance from the throne. That's the first part, 5 to 7. Then we're going to look at Esther's path to the throne, an amazing path, an interesting path to the throne, 8 to 20. And then I'm going to end with Mordecai's faithfulness to the throne. So for note takers and for your mind's eye, you get these categories we'll walk through. I'm going to do it in those sections. So follow along in your Bibles. We'll pick up first Esther's distance from the throne. Verse 5, God's word to us today. Now, there was at the citadel in Susa a Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with Jeconiah, Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther. Now note, Hadassah, the, the, the Hebrew name, it's a flower, it's a myrtle flower. And then Esther is her Persian name, not unusual for the exiles to have these, a Persian name and a Hebrew name. Esther may be a take on Ishtar, the goddess of love in Persia. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had no father or mother. Now the young lady was beautiful of form and face. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Now, when we read this, note the author is, is building tension for us. Because he says, okay, we're going to gather all the beautiful women. And then out of nowhere, we're introduced to a Jew. And we're a Jewish orphan. And she's beautiful. And, you know, we're thinking, oh, my gosh, this, the qualifications, beauty, she's overqualified, literally, because it says she's not just beautiful of face, she has a beautiful body. They're, 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 they're being, these virgins are being gathered. Uh, we, we now know the protagonist of the story, and you already knew this, Mordecai and Esther. Uh, Esther's like a daughter to him. You need to keep in mind, it's, it's, a, he, it's his cousin, but he's much older. And he's like, he's, parent, he's a parent to her. The main thing the author doesn't want us to miss, and I'm just going to camp on this one just briefly, is there is no one, and I mean no one, who stands less of a chance of making it to the throne than a Jewish orphan. That's what we feel in this section. Jewish I'm going to tell you what the Persians think of the Jews. We'll keep reading the story, and we're going to find out they think of the Jews like we think of cockroaches. That's it. I mean, we're going to see that in the story. And then take, that, take the orphan 
This is the bottom of the social rung. This is, nothing, this is a no one with nothing and no resources and no connections. I mean, she doesn't stand a chance, you see. This is the sense to make it to the throne, and the author wants us to feel that, her distance from the throne. Then the story continues, her path to the throne. Look at 8 through 20. It's a long section, so stay in your Bibles with me as I read it straight through. So it came about when the command and the decree of the king were heard and many young ladies were gathered to the citadel of Susa into the custody of Haggai that Esther was taken to the king's palace into the custody of Haggai who was in charge of the women. Now the young lady pleased him and found favor with him. So he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and food, gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace and transferred her and her maids to the best place in the harem. Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. Every day, Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. Now, when the turn of each young lady came to go in to the king, let me stop here. I want you to notice how many times it says, go in and go in and go in. And not to be inappropriate, but, but the, it, the, he's using the language of sex and sexuality. It's sensual. This is what this is conveying even as he says this now when the turn of each young lady came to go in to king ahasuerus after the end of her 12 months under regulations for the women for the days of their beautification were completed as follows six months with oil of myrrh six months with spices and the cosmetics for women the young lady would go in to the king in this way anything that she desired was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace in the evening she would go in And in the morning, she would return to the second harem, it's a second palace room, to the custody of Sheashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not again go into the king unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. Now, when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, came to go in to the king... She did not request anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, advised. And Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus to his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month Tebeth in the seventh year of his reign. Vashti was deposed in year three. It's four years later to year seven. The king loved Esther more than all the women. She found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his princes and his servants. He also made a holiday for the provinces and gave gifts according to the king's bounty. When the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not yet made known her kindred or her people, even as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther did did what Mordecai told her as she had done when under his care. In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's officials from those who guarded the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Now, when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on gallows. By the way, this is not a hanging around the neck. Probably it's an impaling them on a stick, on a big pole. Just stick their body on it. And it was written 
in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. Now, you notice the verbs in this section that describes Esther's path to the throne. They're largely passive. Note at the beginning it notes uh, they were gathered, they were taken. We see nothing in the text that seems to indicate that Esther, some people think this, I don't, but it seems to think Esther used her beauty to seduce Haggai and you know, kind of con him and shrewdly get around and get her way and make everyone like her. We don't get that. We seem, the, the author seems to be showing us that, in a sense, Esther is being carried along in a current that is fundamentally not of her own making. Now, that she's got choices, okay? There are some choices. She makes two in here that we could note, but it's like she's being carried along in this current of God's providence. Now, if you missed it, I want to encourage you to go back to the first message that began the whole series. I had these two ropes hanging here. Do you remember this? Some of you I know weren't here, but I had this rope, and I called it the two strands of providence, and that rope ran up to the ceiling, and it went over a pulley and came down. And, and, it, it, and it's one rope, but it was two strands in front of us, and it was the two strands of God's providence. And I said, if, if, if you want help, you want to be secure from the rising flood, and you just grab this one strand that's like God's in control, God's everything, you go nowhere. And if you grab this one strand over here and say, well, no, it's up to me, I'll save myself, you go nowhere. And that in providence, we say God is in control, and my choices matter, and holding both, I'm secure. you got to always keep that in mind when we speak of God's providence. Yes, Esther had some choices, but she's being carried along, even in those choices. The days of beautification, you know, this is just, this is craziness in, in, when we read this. It's a full year of spa treatment, spices, fragrances. These women get just special treatment, massages, who knows, everything. It's all, but think about this, I'll say this later. It's all outward, really. It's just beauty, and, because beauty's outward, you see, in the kingdom here. It's like a... It's like Wagyu steak. You know the, the best steak at Sotender? Why is it so Because they feed those cows nothing but grain and massage them. That's a terrible analogy, I know, tied to this story. But, but, you, but, 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 I, but I'm just saying it's like they get all this treatment, you know, for this one purpose. And that's what's going on here. Each one did get a night with the king. Uh, after their night with the king, they went to another house of women, harem, where they would remain the rest of their lives. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a sad Sad situation, you know, how this comes about. Ian DeGuid writes this, and I think he kind of captures the ethos of this when he says, The king wished to add to his collection of living dolls. Those chosen would live in secluded splendor for the rest of their lives, even if they were only rarely taken out to play with. End quote. It's wrong, it's degrading, it's improper, it's against all that God intends for women. And I want you to, I want you though, even as we read this in our Bibles, to step back from it. And I think what it suggests and tells us is the story of redemption in it. Uh, it it's not a pretty story. How God redeems a fallen humanity, it's not a pretty, clean, nice, tidy, black and white story. Things are rarely as clear as we hope they would be. Sometimes, y'all, if you can read your Old Testament and not feel some level of angst at what God does, allows, and brings about, then I don't know that you're reading the same one I'm reading because I read it and there's just stuff I don't get. God, I can't believe you allowed. I can't believe you did that. I can't believe you said. But there's no mistaking in this. God is at work in the story of redemption. 
This is a bit of a hyperbole because he could have done it another way. But what, we're, what the author wants us to sense is, okay, the Messiah is going to come through the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is just hanging on by a thread. The nation is about to be exterminated unless something happens later. You know the story. And so if, if Esther doesn't make it to the, to the throne and somehow you know, saves, then where's the Messiah going to come from? Again, that's, God could have done it however he wanted, but that's what this story is communicating. You know, think about, think about it. Is it we, we celebrate Esther. We, we're, we're, we, we admire her, whatever she was in orbit. That was awful. What would that be like to lose your mother and father? You're raised by your older cousin. How about these young ladies ripped from their home? Can you imagine? I can't, I can't even go there to think in my mind that I've got a daughter who's getting ready for college and the knock comes at the door and the, the, the king says she's mine. That's what happened. You think about lives destroyed? This is awful. And yet, do not sanitize it. These are God's most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions for the redemption of humanity and for his glory. And it's honestly a reason I, have great, I find great hope in the book of Esther, y'all. And it's not just this hope, like, oh, happily ever after, everything turned out great. You know, I may be weird, but I find tremendous hope as I read these things and recognize, you know, the Christian life's just not as clear-cut as I wish it was. I mean, this is, there's moral ambiguity in here. I mean, why didn't Esther follow Daniel's example and stand up and say, no? That's what Daniel did. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I don't know. What would you have done? You know, what would I have done? I don't know. I kind of go with Esther. I'd have, Try to figure out some, I don't know. But see, this is the Christian life, y'all. There are things in your life and mine that we can't make sense of. There are moral ambiguities for me, for you. I'm not sure what the right thing to do is here. This is not right. This should, you see that? And in that way, for me at least, I find tremendous hope in the story of Esther. See, there are others who, who didn't even want the book of Esther in the Bible because there's some dark stuff in here. To me, I go, yeah, yeah, my life's a lot like that. And the Christian life can be downright confusing and difficult at times. And I step back and I trust God is at work. As Michael said last week, we're a broken people in a fallen context. It's a mess, y'all. It's a mess. This story reveals the worst of humanity and some good in humanity. And it's kind of mixed together. And that's the way it is. Her path to the throne, it's not a pretty path. How about Mordecai's faithfulness? That's the back, and I already read it, verses 21 to 23. Let me say this about it. The, 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 uh, the sitting at the king's gate was not like, you know, the guys around here sit at the mall and let their wives shop, just going to people watch. You know, it's not sitting at the beach and watching people walk around. This is what he did all day. King's gate's an actual building there at the palace where administrative uh, things happened, business was conducted such that you and I going down to the county administrator and getting my you know, building permit or, or getting your license plates renewed, etc. That happened there. And so we, we tend to believe that after she became queen, Mordecai had some type of uh, uh, official role in the kingdom. 
he had, he had some administrative position. Now notice as well the passive language though. He, it says a plot became known. In other words, he's working there and he didn't put bugs out. He wasn't listening at the door. It came to, what is that? God's providence. It came to him. It became known to him. And he made known that these guys wanted to take the king's life. It was recorded in the book. Uh, and then I'll talk about this in a moment. And quite frankly, it was forgotten. Providence, even there at work. number of lessons in this story. Gosh, y'all, I hope you read through it and, and, and grab your own. But I've, I've whittled it down to three that I can give you in the time that we have. Two, regard God's providence. And one, regards God's great love, which helps us to rest in his providence. So let me... Let me state these. I'll say them a few times. Number one, God's providence moves at glacial speed. just want to remind us, God's providence moves at glacial speed. God isn't in a hurry ever. But he is impeccably punctual. This story is a, probably a 10-year window on this story. You know, we read it in 20 minutes and go, that was wonderful. But we forget that life was daily and not a lot happened on most days. And this happens in decades. And the story of redemption happens in thousands of years. Mordecai, think about just one thing. Mordecai walking in front. Esther's in there. For a whole year, he's walking. How's she doing? How's she doing? Don't you think, some, I don't know, day 38, will this never end? Day 100, how long is this going to go on? Day 282, you see, it's just life. It's just, God's providence is like trying to watch a tree grow, staring at it. And especially for us, let's know our own stuff. We live in a day when, you know, and I'm not a tech nerd at all, but, you know, if your computer doesn't load up in 0.9 seconds and somebody else's loads in 0.3, what do you do? You sell your crappy computer and get the other one that's in point. Nanoseconds. I'm like, are you kidding me? And you know, let's own this. You know, you hear about something. You know, it's, it's weird now, but you know, you hear about very personal and private things that the family should be hearing about. You know what I'm saying? Because it's, so, it's like this information is just flying around like this, and we're upset when we don't know, you know, within hours of something happening, it, it, it fights against us. But I'll tell you this when, we're, when we don't recognize that God's providence moves at glacial speed, we're not at rest, and I'm going to tell you this, I think we miss the providences that God wants to give us a glimpse of. Uh, when we were in Knoxville, uh, uh, you know, in February with Darden's accident, we were, uh, it's the end of the week, and we we're trying to get him to Nashville. Now, what happened was, we thought his therapy would, would, would occur in Knoxville my son's mo- after my son's motorcycle accident. Thought we'd stay in Knoxville and do his therapy. So that's what we did with all the insurance and all the intake papers and everything else. Got to the end of the week, and we thought, no, let's take him to Nashville. And you guys know this in medical field. You, know, you don't just pick up the phone like I want a table at the restaurant. You've got to try and get an inpatient rehab facility. There's this massive paperwork and insurance and doctor's meetings and everything goes on. But we felt like we need to bring him home. And we're in this tiny window to get approved to get him in. And I don't think we can, but the lady asked me, she said, well, do you want me to try? Do you want me to start the paperwork to get him into Stallworth Rehab? And I said, yes, go ahead and start it and figure out what's going to happen. Well, unbeknownst to me, in Las Vegas... 
Uh, Liz Mezzanice is at a convention. She happens to be the director of marketing for Stallworth. And at that convention, she happened to pull up her computer, and she looked at it, and she noticed the name Darden Shadrach. She thought, I don't know, there can't be another Darden Shadrach. She had no idea Darden's an accident. And she said, well, it's Lloyd's son. And she called her people at Stallworth. They, Can you expedite this? Here's, you know, I'm going to help you get this through. And just the long and the short is, y'all, boom, Darden's into Stallworth. Now, get this. All, I don't know any of that's happening. I don't even know Liz. She, she, but she's a, she's a member at Fellowship. I'm sure we met once, but I had no idea, you know, this is going on. Let me be quick to say, that doesn't happen very often in my life. Please don't look at me and go, yeah, that happens to you all the time. That's rare. But I caught a glimpse at a moment when we needed it. But, you know, life's kind of, my life's kind of like one day at a time. <laughs> this day and then that day and then this problem. And it's just, you kind of think, what, where's providence at work? When uh, Walt Disney made that first animated film, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, this 1937, those artists, they, uh, they had to paint over a million cells, you know, the, cell, the, the, the little plastic things that they had to paint that on. Over a million, you guys know how, vid, you know how animation works. They paint over a million of those things. And so, so you look at each one and you kind of go, nothing's happening. I look at the next, there's nothing happening. You know, it's like nothing. But then when they put it in motion, right, do you know each cell on that is shown? You, your eye literally sees it for 1 24th of a second. So when that thing's moving at 1 24th of a second, it's moving through. It's like you see the beginning from the end and you see the activity. But I'm just going to tell you, in life, you look at your life, and you know what you're looking at? There's nothing going on. You know, just this is here. There's one cell. But God knows the beginning from the end. I love this passage in Isaiah 46, 9. Remember the former things long past, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done saying my purpose will be established and i will accomplish all my good pleasure you see god knows the first picture and the last picture not just that he knows everything before the first picture the beginning and everything after the last picture on into eternity and his purpose will be accomplished. Life seems to sometimes hide God's providence. Thank goodness, let's look at it this way, thank goodness for stories like Esther. Because I'm going to tell you, when we read it, we stand back and we say, the glacier moved. It moved. We see it in the story of Esther. The second thing about God's providence is this, God's works of providence are always consistent with his character. Not with the way things, not with the way we think things should be. I'll say it again. God's, God's works of providence are always consistent with his character, not with the way that we think things should be. Now, I'm taking this from verses 21 to 23. In Persia, when the king, something was done for the king, the king did something for that person. I'm just telling you, this is the way it worked all the time. Is someone, I mean, my gosh, what's the biggest thing you could do for the king? How about save his life? <laughs> you see, so, so he saves his life and, and, and the king's to respond to Mordecai. But we know in our story, he doesn't. 
In fact, when Bill picks up the text next week, we're going to find the worst thing happens to Mordecai. Now, we know that it's prefiguring something that's going to happen later in the story, but if you stay right in the context of the story, it's this. He does the right thing, and the wrong thing comes against him. Have you ever experienced that? Relationship, business deal, life, insurance. What? You do the right thing and the wrong thing, the exact opposite thing, comes against you. As far as we know in the text, you know, Mordecai doesn't make a deal of this. He didn't complain. He didn't demand that he get what he deserved. He didn't demand that. And, of course, this indeed is God's work of providence at work, isn't it? Because what's going to happen later with this will be beyond his wildest imagination. Practical application, providence helps me keep my hand out of stuff that's not mine to fix. It helps me keep my mouth shut on things that I know should be a certain way, but it's not my business to do it. I'm just telling you, as I was thinking about this, there's just things in my life right now, y'all, where I, I know the right thing was done, and it just resulted in all this wrong. And I want to go in there and go, no, no, no. And, and providence reminds me, don't demand what you think you should get. Don't, it's not yours to make that just. Step back for who knows, who knows what providence is working. I'll tell you what we can know that allows us to step back. It's for our good and it's for his glory. In that, we can rest. Which brings me to a third lesson. God's works of providence must always be measured by the cross. God's works of providence must always be measured by the cross. I'd like to ask the ushers to come down and they're going to take the uh, Lord's table elements and pass them out for the table itself expresses the truth I'm going to try and explain in this principle. When you take the, the, the elements, let me ask you to do this. Take the bread and the cup and hold it. And I will say to those who are guests, if you have placed your faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, that what he did, he did for you, and you've trusted him as your Savior, trusting him now, then you're welcome to this table. Please join us at this table. Take the bread and the cup and hold it. And let me say this too, when the, the elements are passed in a room this large, when the elements get to the end of an aisle, don't turn around and pass it behind you. At those at the end, just hold it. Just hold it, and then we'll come by and we'll expedite those trays going down, okay? So you're going to take the bread and the cup, and you're going to hold it, and then we will participate and take those together in a moment. Think of it like this, okay? I'll, t I'll continue to teach as those elements are passed. Think about the cruelty of the cross. Uh, we truly cannot name a greater injustice or cruelty than the cross doesn't exist in the universe. And yet, we know the Bible teaches the cross was the outworking of God's providence. This was his purpose from before time began. So when, when, when providence in your life 
is difficult and can I say even cruel. It's hard. Cruel wouldn't be the right word because that would mean evil intent. If it's, when it's really hard, when providence brings those difficulties, we keep in mind that it comes to us by blood-stained hands and a love which knows no bounds. Remember what we just sang 15, 20 minutes ago? There is no greater, right? There's no greater what? Love. There's no greater love. What are we singing about? We're singing about the cross, you see. So, God's works of providence must always be measured by the cross. Now, Esther's story. In Esther's story, there's a pagan king. And he's, he longs for companionship. And so he rips these young women out of their homes, takes away their future, Puts them in a room where they're beautified, that outward paint put upon them, beauty, whatever, to make them beauty in the world's eyes. And, and then, he, then he takes each one and he has sex with each one each night until he finds the one that pleases him that he likes. This is King Ahasuerus. Satisfy his desire. Let's think about King Jesus. He's our great king. And he loves us so much, you see. And he wants to be with us so deeply. He takes the crown from his head and lays it aside. He takes his prerogatives as a son of God and puts them down and he comes down. And he takes on human flesh. And he so loves us, you see. That he takes our rebellion, our sin, our foolishness, which deserves death, and he takes it on himself. Let me take that on myself. And then on the cross, what does he do? He dies in our place. We've sung about it. We've talked about it. We've prayed about it. Because he loves us. See, he, he does that that he might be with us. The world, let's not ignore this. Let's not think we don't, we, don't, we don't live this way. The world still defines beauty by outward appearance. It's all over us, isn't it? But Jesus, in giving his life, you see, in his humility and sacrifice, if you've come to know him and trust him, we used to sing a song many years ago, still around, of course. We'd sing this song, Beautiful One. Absolutely true. Jesus redefines beauty. Now, Isaiah says of Jesus, he was nothing to look at. Can you? He had no appearance that we would be attracted to him. So now we know beauty is not this. Beauty's this. It's the self-sacrifice and the giving and the humility and the grace exemplified in the Lord Jesus Christ. That he would, at infinite cost to himself, give himself that we might be with him forever. Ahasuerus 
threw a banquet for Esther, I assure you it was unbelievable. And I assure you it was all about him. Our King Jesus prepares a table for us. And we sit at it right now. It's so simple. We hold a cup in our hand representing the blood of Christ. Life is in the blood. The blood poured out. His life given so that we would be forgiven. We hold a piece of bread. The bread symbolic of his body broken on our behalf. I want you to think about something. Real beauty, if it's not out here, and Jesus defines it by his life and character and being, how is beauty deepened? How was beauty deepened in the life of our Lord? Through trials and suffering. So how is beauty deepened in us? Trials and suffering. Not the spa. Now we'll take these elements in a moment, but I want you when you take them to have something else in your mind. If you know Jesus Christ, there's another banquet waiting. It's in the future, you see. Paul said when we celebrate this simple table, we're remembering what Jesus did in the past and we are proclaiming his death until he comes. So we're reaching into the future, you see. And if you know Christ, there is a table prepared for you that will make the table and the banquets of Ahasuerus look like bag lunches. And it's yours. There's a seat at that table. Now watch this. I know how we think. We go, okay, there's a seat reserved, but I may not get there. Are you kidding me? The gospel ensures you'll be there. And if you know Christ, I mean, how did the Jewish orphan become the queen? That can't happen. How do we as orphans get a seat at the king's table? That can't happen because of the cross, because of the bloodshed and the body broken. Thank you, Jesus. Not only is the seat reserved, but you'll sit in it. We'll sit in it together. Lord Jesus, for this gift of grace, the gospel, the good news, for this simple table that we celebrate, your body broken on our behalf, we are grateful for your blood poured out, for the forgiveness of sins, to secure our place at your table in your presence forever and your presence now. We give thanks. Take and eat and take and drink.
Let's stand together. I'm going to dismiss you with a benediction, and you're actually going to do your own benediction with one another. Do you remember in the story that King Ahasuerus, if he didn't delight in you, you were put away. And by the way, you were put away for life. He may never call you again, but you're put away unless he delighted in you. And you remember the phrase, unless he called you by name. In the gospel, we come to the realization that Jesus delights in us and calls us by name. Because of an outward beauty? No. Because we're made in the image of God and He loves us. And I'm going to tell you that you know the most powerful beauty potion? Love. Unconditional love. And so I want you, before you leave, to turn to someone nearby. And I want you to do this with two or three people, okay? Some of you extroverts will be here all day. You don't need to be here all day. (laughs) Some of the introverts will not be here at all. You'll be gone. But I want you to do this two or three people. And I, I truly want to invite you to do this. You know, someone next to you or behind you, someone nearby. I want you, before you leave the room, to look at them in the eye and say, the king delights in you and calls you by name. Then turn to someone else and say, the king delights in you and calls you by name. Let this be the word on our lips and the message of our hearts to each other and even to ourselves. Would you do that, please? And then we'll dismiss.